Good evening, everyone. Welcome. My name is Leah Obias. I'm the caseworker and community organizer for Damayan Migrant Workers Association. On behalf of Damayan, I want to thank all of you for coming tonight to our forum. Um, especially, we want to thank Barnard Women's Studies and uh, Barnard Center for Research on Women for co-hosting this forum uh, and for being such a steady and passionate supporter of domestic workers. Uh, it's been a meaningful partnership that has really shown us the depth of both Barnard Women's Studies and BCRW's um, solidarity with uh, grassroots communities in New York and nationally, but especially those who are organizing low-wage women workers with the workers in the forefront of the struggles. It's a partnership that we value and hope to continue building uh, with this forum and into the future. Damayan is also a proud founding member of the National Domestic Workers Alliance, who we also thank for co-sponsoring our event tonight. So I'm sure everyone in the room celebrated the 100th anniversary of the International um, Women's Day yesterday. And, yeah, that's right, we can <laughs> give ourselves applause. As an organization of migrant women domestic workers, Damayan remembered the 144 women workers who died on March 24, 100 years ago, at the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory here in New York. We celebrated the day in solidarity with the workers of Wisconsin, Ohio, and Indiana, and we celebrated the democratic movement sweeping across North Africa and the Middle East, especially inspired by the women taking the lead in the front lines of those struggles. And most of all, we took a moment to recognize where we are as migrant women domestic workers. Domestic workers are the productive forces of society who do domestic work, the work that makes all work possible. Despite the downward spiral of U.S. capitalism, New York continues to be dependent on the labor of about 200,000 mostly immigrant women who take care of the elderly, children, those who cook the food, who clean the homes, allowing their Wall Street and corporate employers to go to their daily work in the global city. Currently, there is a strong and fast-growing movement of women domestic workers in New York and around the United States. Damayan is part of the national center of this movement. Women domestic workers in 33 organizations, 11 cities, and 7 states are organizing and mobilizing to win basic workers and gender rights. In New York, as part of a coalition, Damayan was part of the campaign and the passage of the first ever Domestic Workers Bill of Rights in the United States. While celebrating these accomplishments, we acknowledge a strategic shift that is taking place around the world today. The masses have reached a turning point to conclude that fundamental change in society has to happen beyond services and beyond reforms. We believe that in the context of the mass uprisings and revolts spreading in the Middle East and in South and Central Asia, and the mass movements to protect workers' rights in, workers rights in the Midwest, United States, a comprehensive framework to address the labor and gender issues of domestic workers and all workers is critical and urgent. The global crisis of imperialism has intensified a more vicious assault on the reproductive and productive labor of women workers. Why? How does this happen? 
In this time of great urgency, in the midst of the global economic crisis, when women and low-wage women workers, most of all, are under attack by economic and political systems and policies, why are we taking the time to organize this forum and to study and discuss our issues? As a worker, membership-based organization, we have a wealth of experience and insights. To do the first step in organizing all these experiences and stories, we did a multi-year research on the migration and work and living conditions of Filipino domestic workers in the tri-state area. We published the executive summary of our report last October. Um, you'll see copies in the back on the, in the front table. And this research is complementary to existing research of sister organizations that revealed the working conditions in the domestic work industry. But what is particular in our research is the effort to bring the larger economic system of neoglobalization and to bring migration more into this discussion. So with this forum, we want to explore intersections of domestic work, migration, and gender. Why did the face of domestic workers change to immigrant women in place of black American women from the era of Chattel slavery? Why is domestic work devalued? How does migration contribute to the oppression of women workers and the devaluation of the work? Today, we're honored to have distinguished speakers on the panel who will draw us into a discussion on these questions and others. Um, and I would like to invite first Catherine Sammy, Associate Director of BCRW, to give opening remarks on behalf of BCRW. Thank you, Leah and Linda and everyone at Damayan. Um, it's a pleasure to uh, collaborate and co-sponsor this event. Um, we at the center, as Leah said, have uh, this is an issue very close to us. Uh, we do a lot of collaborative work between activism and scholarship, and Damayan has been an organization that we've worked with both uh, on reprodu reproductive justice and also domestic work. And I just want to congratulate them on their report. Uh, I know that it's a lot of hard work to get a report published and all the work that goes into it, so congratulations. We do have copies downstairs in the center on the first floor if you don't get one tonight. And I also wanted to draw attention to two of our other reports, uh, one on reproductive justice in action. We worked with the New York Women's Foundation and their 17 grantee partners, and Damayan was one of them. Um, so there's, there's more about sort of reproductive justice and what that framework is and Damayan's work. And we also um, worked with the um, Domestic Workers United to produce a report on domestic work that will address some of the issues that come up tonight. But mostly we just wanted to congratulate Damayan and welcome you all, and, and we hope that we can continue this partnership around this important activist work that you're doing. Thank you. Thank you, Catherine. Tonight we have two sets of speakers, and the purpose is to really give way for discussion and question and answer, and we're hoping that our folks in the audience will be able to engage the speakers. So we have two sets of speakers. The first set of speakers will present, um, and then we'll have a round of Q&A. Um, some of our speakers actually need to excuse themselves because of travel um, and other limitations. So they'll give an opportunity to discuss and um, ask questions and interact. Um, and then we'll go to our second round of speakers um, who will sort of go through the same process. After they speak, there'll be Q&A. Um, and our uh, intern, Serena, will be keeping time. So <laughs> our first speaker is Nefertiti Tadiar. 
the Professor and Chair of Women's Studies at Barnard College. Um, Nefertiti's academic interests include transnational and third world feminisms, post-colonial theory, critical theories of race and subjectivity, literary and social theory, cultural studies of the Asia Pacific region, and Philippine studies. Her work concerns the role of cultural practice and social imagination in the production of wealth, power, marginality, and liberatory movement in the, in the context of global relations. While her research focuses on co contemporary Philippine and Filipino cultures and the relation to political and economic change, she addresses more broadly questions of gender, race, and sexuality in discourses and material practices of nationalism, transnationalism, and globalization. She is currently working on a book project with Jonathan L. Beller entitled Present Senses, Aesthetics, Affect, Asia, and the Global, and beginning a new research project entitled Remaindered Life, Becoming Human in a Time of War. She is currently co-editor of the journal Social Text. So please welcome Nefertiti, and we're really honored to have her on our panel. Um, thank you. Um, you know, I really just wanted to come and listen to other people. Um, so I, I will um, just keep my remarks very brief. I've written on um, some of these issues before, and I don't want to re repeat what I've written. Um, there are many stories that we tell um, ourselves and tell others to make sense of the world. And there are many stories about globalization that we could, um, that we could tell. Um, the story of globalization as, as uh, consisting of all of these political and economic and social transformations uh, that are occurring, that are bringing, at once bringing people closer together and yet also creating massive divisions in our fates, in, in wealth, uh, in circumstances, and um, is is one that I think that it is helpful because it helps to um, think about the differences in uh, the, the gains and the drawbacks of this phenomena of globalization. <clears throat> you know, I'm only going on the title that they, I've, that the, was given to me, so I'm going through each of the words. <laughs> Migration is one of the um, one of the expressions of um, or one of the pathways in which um, these processes of globalization take place because globalization is in part the reorganization of capital which depends on the mobility of that capital which will also result in the mobility of labor the mobility of people um, as as uh, corporations and multinational companies go offshore uh, and in search of cheaper and cheaper labor and um, this, the destruction of um, local economies uh, frees up people and they uh, need to find other places to um, make a living, to, just to put it simply. Um, so, but today I actually want to talk about, the, I want to talk a little bit about social reproduction because I think this is a broader category for thinking about domestic work and where, where domestic work belongs in social reproduction. You know, Ruthie Gilmore, who is a professor who writes about the prison industrial complex, uh, talks about social reproduction as, um, and I will quote, the broad array of political, economic, cultural, and biological capacities a society uses to renew itself daily, seasonally, generationally. In other words, social reproduction is the capacity for peoples to reproduce themselves, to continue, to survive, to go on, to, to, uh, to produce a future for themselves, right? 
What is occurring in this uh, moment, uh, in this global moment of capitalist accumulation, is an all-out assault on people's capacities for social reproduction, certain people's capacities for social reproduction, which means to say that it becomes much, much more difficult, and this is a very long historical process, in which the way that you devalue a people, in part, is uh, by disallowing them from uh, reproducing their livelihood independent of the, the ways in which you, uh, you would have to um, sell your, your labor to others, right? The way in which um, you would have to um, put yourself into uh, situations where you would have to accept terrible circumstances uh, in order only to make a living because you cannot make your own living. And this is, uh, th this is a very complex process. It, it runs from um, agribusiness, gobbling up the land, kicking people off the land so that they can no longer um, produce their means of subsistence, um, and uh, therefore they can no longer feed their families. Uh, so there are many ways in which people's social reproduction is um, assaulted. Um, the ones that we refer to the mostly is, of course, the, um, the lack of jobs, let's say, the lack of employment. But I think there's a broader category here of the lack of livelihood, the lack of the abilities to sustain yourselves, your families, your communities, which requires uh, you to go elsewhere. Um, now, um, why, you asked the question, why is social work, uh, domestic work devalued? I think there, there are many ways to answer that. One, of course, is that uh, these domestic work consists of women's work. Women's work, uh, historically also slave work, uh, colonial, uh, colonial work. It consists of work that is denigrated because it is seen in contrast to what is called productive work labor that produces value. Value here is capitalist value, value that you can accumulate and, and, um, and convert into wealth, okay, to put it simply. But I, I want to focus on the way that that story about uh, exploitation, because that is the story of exploitation of domestic workers and workers at large, is one story that one can tell. It is a story of coercion, of victimization, and you know, of course, the Philippine state or any state that wants to make you, that, that profits from that exploitation will give you another story, which is heroes, right? Sacrifice, nationalism, and so forth. So you get those kinds of uh, stories, and they are, they are the um, obverse of each other. Victims and heroes are part of the same story. It's just the other person is telling the story. But I wanted to think about another way that I have been trying to tell the story um, of domestic workers and domestic work in general, women's work in general, which is that it consists of capacities for life-making capacities. It consists of skills, of uh, all sorts of um, human and social capacities that therefore that then become siphoned off or used to uh, create profit for others. That profit comes from the fact that those capacities and the time that you, that the time of work uh, and the employment of those capacities is significantly valued less, right, than the time of employers. The time of employers, the time of a proper citizenry who will benefit from these domestic workers is much more valuable than the time of cleaning, maintaining a home, right? And that devaluation is crucial 
for those workers, meaning the employers now, who are, who are part of that productive citizenry, the proper, uh, the proper citizens who are being social, helped to socially reproduce in the, in the host countries, that that is a supplement to their social reproduction. In other words, domestic workers are, their own forms of social, production, social reproduction at home are being destroyed while they're being enjoined to help in the social reproduction of the citizens of the host countries in which they live, right? Um, but it, it's important to think that what is being drawn from domestic workers are extremely important capacities. Um, and I like the, um, the name of Damayan, because it comes from the word damai. In Filipino, this means compassion. Uh, it means sympathy. It means the capacity to feel for another. These are actually important capacities that have been deployed in care work, domestic work. Uh, the, these are capacities that are devalued and yet are incredibly crucial um, the, and, and therefore, a, um, potentially politically powerful, right? And so, if if we think about um, you know the the mystery, what I would call the mystery of care, the care work, that you care, unlike this economy of exploitation in which you know your labor is continuously stolen and siphoned off of you. Therefore, increasingly, the worker is diminished and also incredibly and also morally devalued, socially devalued, because if you are, if you're constantly diminished by your work, you're also looked upon as the embodiment of that diminishment, you know, because you're giving everything to others in the production of others, women know this, then you, feel, then you uh, are in turn represented as somehow lesser. And that's why the, the, the word that's used for domestic workers in the Philippines is a helper. You're only a helper. You're already lesser because you are helping. And help here is a lesser form of being. Right? So that's the way that care is seen as lesser. But I'm trying to sit, show you the way in which care actually is uh, another kind of capacity that is interestingly, the mystery of care is that it can be very generative for both the, for, for those who are cared for and those who are doing the caring. It does not fall in this, necessarily into this economy of of diminishment and exploitation. And I think there is a, a powerful way that that can be a political act because a care is a, a relation as well. And all societies, all communities are built on relations. And so the question would be, is what kind of political act, what kind of political society could be built on these very capacities that are devalued in domestic worker? Uh, in domestic work, which domestic workers already know and exhibit in everyday life. And it seems, so it's extremely important, I think, to tell the story how there is power in our hands. There's power in women's hands. There's power in domestic workers' hands. Not only tell the story about how that power is taken, but what else can one do with that power. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you.
so our um, third speaker in this set is Alexa Kazdan, the Director of Research and Policy for the Community Development Project of Urban Justice Center, um, which was our partner uh, in this research. The CDP's research and policy work helps grassroots organizations develop, design, and implement participatory research initiatives to support and strengthen their organizing and advocacy work. Um, so welcome, Alexa. Thank you. Um, so I was asked to talk a little bit about the process of participatory action research, um, and it goes by several different names. Some people call it participatory action research, or PAR. It's also called community-based participatory research. It's also called grassroots research. So you can call it what you want, but it generally has some principles. So I'm going to talk a little bit about what participatory research is and why it's an important tool in social change. And I'm also going to talk a little bit about um, the example of the Damayan project and also a project that we did with Domestic Workers United. Um, I'm going to let Damayan take care of telling you what we found through our research, because that's the point <laughs> of participatory research. Um, but I'm just going to give you a little bit of a framework for how the process works. So participatory action research, um, there's a few sort of basic tenets. Um, one is that it debunks the general stereotype that um, only researchers that sit in universities or in think tanks are experts about an issue. So it really brings on the community members that are impacted by an issue to become the researcher. And in doing that, it shifts power relations. So as part of an important tool in organizing, it both builds power and it shifts power relations. Um, one of the ways it shifts power is that we all know that a major tool of people in power is information. They hold information, they keep it from others. So when communities get a chance to find information themselves and disseminate information themselves, that gives them power. Um, another way that it gives communities power is that it gives them data. So they can go to a table and sit down with an elected official or whoever you know, has, is able to make decisions about an issue, and they can present the, the story and the data about their communities rather than being told what they should be doing. Um, another piece around participatory research that can you know, differ from traditional research is that it's really focused on giving voice. Um, so it allows communities to tell their own story and to document their own stories. And, you know, like, it, similar to the data, it allows them to, to take control so someone else isn't telling a story for them. Um, and then another piece around participatory research is that it's strategic. So it's not just research to be read. It's research to be part of action. Um, so it's strategically... Um, part of an organizing campaign. And, you know, when you start a participatory research project, you start with the question, what's the social change we want to, what's the social change we want at the end of the day, and what information do we need to gather to help make that change? So, you know, this is really what Damayan did through this project. Um, and it's, it's a really big undertaking, so I just think, I'm sure everybody knows, but, you know, this... This report here is huge. Um, it was a multi-year effort. It was incredibly participatory, one of the most participatory projects I've seen. Um, 
in terms of being led um, and designed by domestic workers. And, you know, I was looking at the, the methodology in the executive summary and I was amazed that it, was ma it got made onto one page <laughs> just because of all the incredible work that went into this. Um, so I'm just going to talk a little bit about the, the methods that Damayan used in the research and hopefully we can hear a little bit more um, from Linda and others about the findings. Um, but the major methods that, we, that were used um, were a, a survey, a really comprehensive survey um, that covered a whole range of issues. Um, and workers were trained to administer the surveys and also were central to creating all the survey questions. So what was asked was determined by domestic workers themselves. Um, then Damayan did several focus groups and that was really to get at the stories um, behind what domestic workers were experiencing. And the focus groups are, were really important because they, you know, so many of the issues that um, are faced are very nuanced and complicated. So this allowed um, domestic workers to really tell their stories and to tell their stories to people that um, they trusted rather than to, to a researcher that was coming in from the outside. So I think this provides really valuable information that couldn't be captured through traditional research. Um, we also did some interviews, some one-on-one -on -one interviews, which created the profiles that you'll see in the full book. <laughs> um, and <laughs> is that here? No, okay. Um, and if you, if you turn, I'm, I'm looking at page five of the executive summary, which has all of the different methods that were used. Um, they also did like a very comprehensive literature review to get secondary data to support what was found in the field, which was really important. And the big, the other big piece around participatory research is bringing the community into the analysis phase of research, uh, which is, a you know, something that very rarely happens with traditional research. So bringing data back to the community um, that's being researched and hearing their point of view about what's being collected, what's missing, what other, what, what other inquiry is needed. So Damayan held a, a few um, analysis workshops to really make sure that the information that they were gathering was the right information. So that's sort of the general framework of participatory research. We've also worked with Domestic Workers United, of which Damayan is a partner, to do participatory research looking at collective bargaining for domestic workers. Um, and we work with a variety of different groups, but th that's sort of the general frame. So I can answer questions in the Q&A after. Thank you, Alexa. I, I actually just do want to take the opportunity to say that um, the, the final report with um, all of the complete findings, so you're holding the executive summary, the final report um, can be ordered in book form, actually. So we have some order forms, um, once again, in the back. Um, but I, the, uh, Linda will discuss the research more extensively in the second round. Um, so at this point, we'll take some questions, and um, we'll take... I think three questions at first, and then we'll give them an opportunity to answer. Um, and then we can come back and do another round afterwards. One of the questions I was wondering about is, we talked about globalization, and 
work and, you know, and winning rights here for domestic workers. Um, but it seems like if we're going to talk about globalization, there also has to be like an international kind of winning of rights for women, you know, on equal pay, you know, I think, and, you know, equal rights and, uh, you know, and that solidarity building up. And I'm wondering if there's, based on what's happening in New York, is there efforts in other countries that are taking place in terms of dealing with this issue? Hello. Um, this question, I guess, is for whoever wants to address it. I, I was just wondering if you had any other examples that you could share or stories of other um, women's organizations that have used um, participatory action research to further, um, to, to, to effectively proceed with campaigns. I think I'm just asking just so we, I mean, because I'm also with a partner organization, um, uh, partnered with Damian, so just so we could sort of also sharpen our own work um, and look to like really uh, powerful examples of, of that. So. Part of the reason for, um, in some ways, um, the lack of a global women's rights workers movement is uh, because of the ways that um, uh, race and nation divide women um, and the way in which they are differently valued on an international scale and that therefore, in fact, the growth of the domestic work industry comes from, to a certain extent, the limitation of women's movements to the expansion of their rights within their own country and the expansion of their um, struggle and, and their um, gaining um, more and more uh, equal pay to men. So when it was a single axis kind of um, movement, that opened the way for disenfranchised women from other countries who, were, who did not have the same rights um, as immigrants, who are also devalued by a capitalist system that is, um, that is global um, and, and that are devalued also on racial terms, right, to prevent any kind of solidarity among those women. So... Um, it, would, it is, a good, it is extre extremely important, I think, for um, women to recognize what they have at stake um, in, in that solidarity. But at the same time, when it just comes to rights, only asking for rights confines one within certain nation states. And, um, certain na and because there is inequality among nation states, um, so for example, just in the Philippines in relationship to the U.S., those rights within their countries can either be rescinded or bent or, uh, or violated that will benefit um, women in the host country such as the U.S. So there's always an active divisive uh, mechanisms by which um, women do not see there as having common interests. Um, and so that, that is, a, so to factor in race and nation and the differences between them and how that works for accumulation on a global scale is extremely important. One can't just think about gender in relationship to women's work in the current moment. I know that in Hong Kong, there's a vibrant uh, domestic workers uh, movement, and it's mostly led by Filipinos. Yay! <laughs> yeah. And also in Europe and in the Middle East. Now, uh, the National Domestic Workers Alliance is very much involved uh, 
uh, with the decent work for domestic workers with the International Labor Organization. So I think middle of this year, uh, there will be a convention uh, about that. And, uh, you know, domestic workers here through the NDWA is very much involved. Yeah, but uh, I agree with Neferty that it's very hard to uh, organize a global movement, you know, uh, for domestic workers' rights. But, you know, uh, with forms like this and with the help of the academic, we can do that. Can, can I just add one more thing? That, um, yes, yeah, there are some organizations like uh, Migrante International, you know, who, that have a transnational scope in their organizing when it comes to migrant workers. Um, but there are also other organizations, transnational movements, that are also about transforming existing relations both among countries and within countries. And that's very important because even though it's not specific to domestic work, it tackles the conditions that produce uh, the devaluation of domestic work. Um, and and with, without, without those two going hand in hand, uh, then the site-specific domestic work can only gain up to certain rights, and there will be other women out there in another country somewhere who will fill in uh, for that spot. Um, and also I'd like to add that um, one of the things that struck me about Damian's report on domestic work that I hadn't seen a lot in um, other reports on domestic workers is actually if you turn to, like, page 12 and 13, the list of recommendations include recommendations for the Philippine government um, and policies that, Philippine, that Filipinos here would like to see implemented in the Philippines. So, um, and that really, I think, shows the value of a group like Damayan that has an international um, perspective on it and, uh, and tries to address like the root issue. Yeah, I was trying to think of other specifically women's groups that have done participatory research, and the one that comes to mind is Domestic Workers United. Um, there's a study from 2006 called Home is Where the Work Is, and then the study that we just did around collective bargaining. Um, and, I mean, there's a lot of examples of a participatory research projects with social justice organizations, but I just can't think of any that are specifically with women's organizations. But I'll try to keep thinking. Yeah. About research, the National Alliance is trying to do a national uh, survey, right? Yeah. We're targeting 2,000, uh, you know, uh, respondents for the national survey. To, uh, and we're targeting domestic workers who are not members yet mm -hmm. of existing uh, organizations to really see what are the, you know, uh, conditions uh, at work. So that, that will be really a powerful tool for the uh, movement building uh, of domestic workers. Okay, I think we have time for um, maybe one or two more questions for the first round. This is sort of in, I guess, addition to or in response to Ms. Ms. Olikin. I'm sorry <laughs> if I'm butchering your last name. Yeah, that's correct. <laughs> Comment about the possibility of academics working together with people involved primarily in social movements, to create the sort of change that uh, Damian proposes, for example. Um, and I'm wondering, given both that and the very change-driven scope of participatory action research, what limitations are of that work being recognized within academic communities, and where exactly that falls? I realize this question isn't directly related to domestic work, but more about the type of research that leads 
to the change that you're working towards. It's, it's really directed to anyone up there, perhaps particularly Professor Tadiar or um, Alexa Kasdan. Basically, what, where does this research fall, or how is it received by other academics, and is that even a question that should be regarded as important given the social focus or political purpose of this research? You know, the, uh, to my mind, there's a lot of uh, research being done everywhere. This is extremely valuable research, um, and uh, I, uh, academics would also rely on it just as they would rely on other pieces of uh, other kinds of information. So there's, there's not really like an exclusion or a total division between these arenas of research. On the other hand, um, uh, academic research also has... Um, has to fight its battles <laughs> because there's also a way in which academic research is what founds many of state policies, um, local governments, um, you know, all kinds. Uh, and so academic research also uh, creates conditions for domination. And so those within academia also have to fight the battle to think about other, the, the way that research can shape um, uh, critical research can reshape uh, that environment. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question. I don't think there's a real division between um, the kinds of participatory research that we heard about and what academic research is, but we just have different kinds of sites of battle and sites of change that we're, um, we're looking at and striving for, and our interventions are different because the rules are different, the, uh, the people are different. Yeah, I think I would agree. You know, I think there's sometimes a tendency to critique participatory research as not being real research, and I think that's part of the importance of it, is to reframe research so that, you know, when people are going into their own communities and collecting stories and collecting data, that's also seen as research. So, and I think there is an important role for academic Damia to play in that and to support that and to help provide tools from the resources that are in academics. Um, and so, and that's part of what we do is we bring tools and resources to allow community members to be the ones that are doing the inquiry. I have a question about um, participatory action research. Like, how does it start? Do, or I guess, this, like, do groups approach the Urban Justice Center and say we want to do a research project um, or does it go the other way? And then how do those initial conversations start? Like, especially with Damayan, like, did you have a question in your mind that you wanted to address in the research yeah. or not? Right. <laughs> Thank you. I can take the first part, but I wasn't around for the beginning of the Damayan research, so Linda will have to do that. Um, so we get approached by groups, so part of the sort of fundamental thing about participatory research is that it comes from the community groups. So, you know, the, the issue has to be identified by the community groups, and then we have a set of tools and processes to help the groups work through designing the project. So I think one of the things I was saying at the, when, I, when I spoke was you really start with this question of what's the social change we want to bring about, and so groups have to know that. 
and then from there you figure out what information you want to collect and then you think about where do I go to get that information and what methods do I need to use to be able to bring that information back and then you go from there. Yeah, that's correct. We start with like a hypothesis. Like for example, uh, for this research, uh, I'm also a worker, a domestic worker, so we really understand the problems, but we want to be scientific in our approach. So uh, yeah, uh, we understand that the reason why Filipinos came here, you know, despite their education and professional training, is because there's no employment back home or, you know, inadequate employment. So that's one reason. So we wanna, we did wanna research or study, you know, the reasons why Filipinos migrated. So we came about, you know, the word forced migration to explain that. And then uh, we know that, you know, these middle class uh, Filipino women, you know, they're not living middle, middle class lives here, you know, uh, from being homeowners, they became room sharers, you know. You can find two to four women in one room in New York. So that's really a big change of lifestyle. And so what is the impact to the women workers, to their children back home, et cetera? So we also thought about social migration. So you kind of have, have these questions, and then you try to break it, break it down. With the, the way we did it was with our leaders. We have a board. We have community organizers. And of course, we have to... We need the help of the experts, and that's where you know we engage UJC, a uh, community development project of UJC. Well, I, I, about our research, I would like to uh, really credit you know our colleague uh, Annalisa Bias because she really worked very hard on that. She's at the back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so thank you again to our first set of speakers and thank all of you for participating in the discussion with your questions. Uh, we wanna move to our fourth speaker who will provide a testimony. Um, and uh, our fourth speaker is Cecil Ramos, who um, is a newly elected board member of Damayan Migrant Workers Association. Um, and just by way of introducing Cecil, um, Damayan is a democratic organization, which means to say that our leaders um, come from our membership, and our leaders are elected in a democratic process um, by the membership. So um, Cecil was elected this past January, um, and I don't have a bio because she will pretty much tell you her life story now. Um, she will be speaking in Tagalog and will be interpreted by Annalisa. Magandang gabi po sa lahat ng nandito ngayon sa mga professor at mga estudyante at kasaman ko sa organisasyon, Dumayan Family. Good evening to all of you, professors, students, and my friends in the organization, my Dumayan Family. Ako po si Cecil Ramos, member ng Dumayan. Ako po ay nagpapasalamat sa oportunidad na maishare yung aking karanasan. I am Cecil Ramos, a member of Dumayan. I would like to thank you for the opportunity to share my experience. May lima kong anak at hiwalay sa asawa. 19 years old pa lang ako na mag-asawa. Nakatapos po ako ng high school at dala ng kahirapan, hindi nakapagkulehiyo, nagka-boyfriend, at nang malaman ng magulang, pinakasal agad. 
I have five children, and I am separated from my husband. I was only 19 years old when I got married. I was able to graduate from high school, and um, because of my family's hardship, I was not able to attend college. When I had my first boyfriend and my parents found out, they forced me to get married right away. Kaso, ang naging asawa ko ay napaka-irresponsable. Siloso at nananakit. Hindi ako pinaghahawak ng pera, binibigyan ako ng pamalengke, at kailangan may resibo ang lahat ng binili ko. Ang masakit pa, kung saang lugar siya nagtatrabaho, nagkakameron ng asawa doon. Dagdag doon, kinukuha ng asawa ko ang pera para sa aming pamilya, para magsugal, uminom, mambabae, lagi kaming pinapabayaan. Unfortunately, the man I married was irresponsible, jealous, abusive, and physically hurt me. I was never able to manage our finances. He would give me money for groceries, but I had to have a receipt for every little thing that I bought. What affected me more was that he would have multiple affairs. Wherever he worked, he would have a relationship with a woman. In addition, my husband would take the money for our family to gamble, drink, and womanize. He would always abandon us. Ginawa kong lahat ng pagsisikap. Pinasok ko na kahit anong trabaho, namasukan sa bahay ng iba, naglabada, nag-alaga ng mga matatanda, nagbenta ng damit at pagkain. Lahat ginawa ko. May mapakain lang sa mga anak ko. Umabot din sa panahon na hindi ko na siya mapatawad dahil sa problema na binibigay sa amin. I did everything for my family's survival. I took on all types of work. Do domestic work in other people's homes, wash clothes, provide elderly care, sell clothes and food. I did it all just so that my children would have something to eat. Eventually, I got to a point when I couldn't continue to have a relationship with my husband because of all the problems he created for our family. Halos hindi kami makaraos dahil sa hirap ng buhay sa Pilipinas. Dumating ang araw noong August 2008, apat na buwan lang akong buntis sa panglima kong anak na may tumawag sa akin na kaibigan na nagtatrabaho sa Amerika. Tinanong niya ako kung gusto ko daw pumunta sa Amerika at magtrabaho. Iredikumenda daw niya ako sa amo niya na nangangailangan namang gagawa sa tahanan. Siyempre, sa isip ko, Amerika, umuo na lang ako. My children and I struggled a lot because life is very difficult in the Philippines. However, on August 2008, when I was four months pregnant with my fifth child, one of my friends in America called me. My friend asked me if I wanted to go to America and work. He said he would recommend me to his employer so that I could work as a domestic worker. Of course, I thought, it's America, so I agreed. Ang problema, buntis nga ako. Hindi ako mabibigyan ng visa, umalis ng bansa at magtrabaho sa kondisyon ko na yon. Sa sobrang gusto ko talagang makapunta sa Amerika dahil sa isip ko, pag nakapunta ako dito, ito na ang pag-asa namin, pati na ang pinabukasan ng mga anak ko. But I had a problem. I was pregnant. I wouldn't be able to get a visa, leave the country, and work in my condition. I knew that I really wanted to come to the U.S. It would be our only hope and the future of my children was at stake. Naisipan ko na seven months na naman ako, ako siguro buo na yung bata. Humanap na ako ng doktor at humingi ako ng tulong sa kanila. 
na sabi ko, magpapooperan ako para maisilang yung anak ko. Maraming doktor na tumanggi. Ang sabi nila, paano kung hindi natin maisalba ang buhay ng bata? Kaya po bang pumunta ng Amerika? I thought, I was already seven months along and that perhaps my baby was already a whole being. I looked for a doctor and asked for help to have an operation so that I could give birth. Many doctors rejected me. They asked me, if I weren't able to have and save the baby, would I still be able to go to America? It made me think. Uh, hanggang isang araw, may isang doktor na tumawag sa akin. Pinabalik ako sa klinik. Pina-ultrasound at sabi niya, okay na ang bata. Sabi niya, kailangan lang admit kita ng tatlong araw bago maoperahan para mabigyan natin ng vitamins yung bata sa, sa loob ng tiyan mo. Sobra-sobra ang tuwa ko noon. Then, one day, one of the doctors called me. He asked me to return to his clinic and have an ultrasound. He said that it would be okay for, me to, for him to perform the procedure as long as I got admitted three days prior to the operation. And he told me that he would just need to put some vitamins in the baby. I was relieved when he said that. Tawag ako sa kaibigan ko at sinabi ko kung pwedeng makahingi ng isang buwan pa bago ako makapunta dito sa aking magiging amo. Naoperahan ako at sa awa ng Diyos, malusog ang bata. Soon after I heard from the doctor, I called my friend in the U.S. I asked him if it would be possible to get a one-month extension from my future employer before I go to the U.S. I was able to have the operation, and with the grace of God, I was able to give birth to a healthy baby. No October 2008, nagpadala ang aking magiging amo ng kontrata. Tuwang-tuwa ako nung nakita ko na may kasulatan na magtatrabaho ako bilang housekeeper walong oras isang araw. May sweldo ako ng 1-6 isang buwan, dagdag pa ang bayad sa overtime, at may isang day off ako sa isang linggo. In October 2008, my future employer sent a contract. I was so happy when I saw that there was a written agreement for me to work as a housekeeper, working eight hours a day with a salary of $1,600 a month, plus overtime pay, and one day off a week. Kahit na mayroon sa akin, iwanan ng aking mga anak, sa kapatid ko, alam ko na yun lang ang paraan para umunlad ng kalagayan namin. Even though it was difficult for me to leave my children under the care of my sister, I knew that it was the only way that our lives would improve. Nakapunta ako dito December 23, 2008, mula sa JFK, Diretso ako sa amo ko sa Englewood, New Jersey. Kinabukasan, nagsimula agad akong magtrabaho. Kinuusap niya ako ng mga gagawin ko sa bahay. I arrived in the U.S. on December 23, 2008. From the JFK airport, I went straight to my employer in Englewood, New Jersey. The very next day after I arrived, I started to work. My employer told me all of my duties. Nakaramdam ako ng takot. Sabi niya, hindi ako pwedeng makalabas. Naka-alarm ang bahay at pag nag-alarm, may dadating na pulis at huhulihin ako. Lagi niyang sinasabi sa akin na kaya lang ako nandito ay dahil sa kanya. Sobrang tapang niya. Lagi niya akong sinisigawan at sinasabihan ng stupid. Minsan, bumato pa siya ng tinidor sa harapan ko. I felt really scared when he told me that I was not able to leave the house. The house had an alarm. If the alarm went off, the police would come to arrest me. 
He always made sure I knew my place and that I was only able to come to the U.S. because of him. He was mean. He always yelled at me and called me stupid. One time, he even threw a fork towards me. Dagdag sa takot ka sa aking amo, nahirapan ako sa daming trabaho. Sobrang laki ng bahay. Nagsisimula ako magtrabaho ng alas 6 ng umaga hanggang alas 11 ng gabi. Ginawa ko lahat, magluto, maglinis, mamulansya, maglaba, magpaligo at magpakain ng aso araw-araw. In addition to fearing my employer, I had a difficult time with the amount of work in the household. The house was huge. I would, work at, I would start work at 6 a.m. until 11 p.m. in the evening. I did everything, cook, clean, iron, laundry, bathe, and feed the dog every day. Kinuha ang passport ko, hindi binibigay ang tamang sweldo, at minsan lang ang day off. Halos magkasakit na ako dahil sa sobrang stress at depression na nararamdaman ko. My employer also took my passport and didn't give me the salary that we agreed upon. I seldom had a day off. I was getting sick from stress and depression. Hanggang sa hindi ko na nakayanan, tumakas ako at may nagmagandang loob na isama ako sa organisasyon. Until one day, I couldn't take it anymore. I was able to escape. Then a friend introduced me to Damayan. Tinuring nila akong kapamilya. Pinatira lahat ng suporta binigay nila sa akin. Hindi ko akalain na may ganito palang organisasyon Members of the Mayan treated me like family. I was able to get housing. I felt so supported. I never knew there was an organization like this, and I'm so grateful. Madami akong natutunan sa organisasyon. Sila ang nagbigay ng inspirasyon ko. Nagbigay ng lakas ng loob sa akin na huwag bibigay, kaya mo yan. Lagi nilang sinasabi sa akin. I have learned a lot from the organization. They have given me inspiration. They have given me confidence in myself, telling me that I'm able to withstand anything, that I'm strong and capable. They always lift me up. Ngayon, nagkaroon ako ng lakas ng loob para ipaglaban ang sarili ko at karapatan ng iba pang inaapi. Kaya kung sino man nakakaranas ng tulad ng aking naranasan, Nandito lang yung damayan na handang tumulong sa inyo. Now, I'm able to have the courage to fight for myself and the rights of other people who are abused. For those who are in the same position that I was in, I want to tell you that damayan is here and ready to help. Nakakatayo ako ngayon para ipabod sa inyo na kailangang kumilos tayo sama-sama para baguhin ang sistema na nang-aapi sa mga kababaihan mga manggagawa at iba pang naapi. Maraming salamat po. Mabuhay. I am also able to stand here today and say, we need to take action together so that we can change the system that oppresses us women, workers, and other people. Thank you. Long live. Thank you. Um, we'll move on to our next speaker. Um, Terry Niliaska. Terry is the daughter of a Filipina undocumented domestic worker. Um, ten years as a union organizer and a longtime Damayan volunteer. Now an aspiring radical lawyer at CUNY <laughs> School of Law. Uh, <laughs> 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 
Her article entitled Some Women's Work, Domestic Work, Class, Race, Heteropatriarchy, and the Limits of Legal Reform will be published at the, Mich at the Michigan Journal on Race and Law this spring. So welcome, Terry. Thanks. Uh, thank you. Um, first thing, and also I want to thank you so much for sharing your story. Um, so they asked me to talk about a huge topic, <laughs> uh, domestic workers um, and the intersectionality of race, class, and gender. And I wrote up here crossroads, but I think maybe we could, and I think I might have written this somewhere, um, we could maybe better say really it's the perfect storm, right, of uh, super exploitation is where domestic workers stand. Um, and uh, quickly, I'm going to just uh, a few definitions that are of some terms that I'll be using, or at least that really inform me and my framework. Um, one is heteropatriarchy, which a uh, system of power and control based on compulsory heterosexuality and patriarchy. Um, the next term that I'll be referring to a lot is white supremacy, a system of exploitation and oppression of people of color by white people for the purpose of maintaining and defending wealth, power, and white privilege. Uh, and then finally, I, don't, I, I think all of us actually up here have been referring to neoliberalism um, without perhaps defining it. So uh, one definition I offer is that it's the defining trait currently in the U.S. economy, and it's characterized by substantially deregulated markets, a dramatic increase in wealth disparity, and the dismantling of state regulations and institutions in favor of a unregulated, um, running rampant <laughs> private market. Um, so just to, I, for my, you know, just to show you all where I'm coming from. And the next part, um, the next thing that I'm drawing on is there's a great essay. Actually, there's a whole, there's a great anthology uh, called um, Color of Violence, and it's by the Insight Women of Color Against Violence Collective. And um, many of you have maybe have probably read it. Um, but I draw on it a lot. There's, it's a short essay, so everyone should read it if you have a chance. And it's called The Three Pillars of White Supremacy. And Andrea Smith wrote it for organizers and activists um, to start thinking about uh, the way that racism and white supremacy work differently in different populations. And I think here it's especially applicable because uh, domestic worker population has changed from being primarily, um, uh, well, earlier um, enslaved African women and then African-American women and now uh, primarily immigrant women. And so uh, a little bit what I thought I'd talk about today is how that, how that change um, informs, maybe could inform who we or how we organize and how we think about racism and white supremacy. Um, and she offers these terms, which I'll go into a little bit um, in more in depth. So um, the first one that she talks about is slavery and capitalism, um, and that you know refers to the chattel slavery system that was in the U.S. for several hundred years, and uh, you know specifically to domestic workers, Mammy, this uh, race, this racist image of a black woman who's subservient and um, you know takes care of white children to the cost detriment of her own children as being kind of upheld as like the proper role of a black woman. 
And then Willie Horton, do you all remember Willie? Just I remember, some people weren't born then. <laughs> Um, So in the 80s, uh, Willie Horton ads were used to discredit the Democratic uh, presidential candidate, and he was someone who had been imprisoned um, and uh, was, I guess, going out on weekend passes. It was like a part of prison reform. Um, And so they put these ads out saying that this presidential candidate, I I think it was Dukakis, was you know easy on crime and it was letting this dangerous black man out onto the streets and really you know mobilizing a white population um, by using this very racist image and so part of what I wanted to, you know for us to think about is the power of these racist images um, in moving um, people one way or the other um, and used really successfully by the the right um, obviously. Uh, so, you know, legal responses to this way of, um, to this form of white supremacy uh, are all across the board, but some of them was a, something called the Black Codes, which were created immediately after um, uh, formal slavery was abolished, where it was spe- specific crimes that could only be committed if you were black. So they were specific things that only applied to black people. Um, and then when those uh, became... Um, unlawful, um, then they created vagrancy laws, right, which is loitering, all these things that basically being outside and being black. Um, now, which we can see is actually used a lot against undocumented immigrants. Um, the attacks on the social safety net, uh, again, like this idea of, the, um, of welfare, the welfare queen also being is a really racist image that was used to mobilize people um, to uh, dismantle uh, our social safety net. Um, the, the prison industrial complex, Angela Davis writes a lot about this, how slavery um, and the logics of white supremacy are really tied to, uh, it, it's logical that so many black men would be imprisoned under this kind of white supremacist lies. Um, and then the legalizing private discrimination, I think of that as, you know, the 14th Amendment, which was passed immediately after slavery to dismantle uh, racism, theoretically. Um, you know, the state Supreme Court read that to only apply when the state was involved, implicitly in that meaning that any private discrimination was okay. So um, we don't often think of it that way, but really what the Supreme Court did was legalize private discrimination. And then finally, you know, for us here, thinking specifically about the exclusion of domestic workers and agricultural workers from the New Deal was also a legal response um, from all New Deal legislation. Um, At that time, most domestic workers and agricultural workers were um, black Americans. And so this this was a, you know, direct legal response to um, making sure that we kept a lower caste, um, economic caste in the country. So... Then she um, uses this phrase Orientalism, which she takes from Edward Said's theory. Oh, three minutes left. Oh my God. Okay. <laughs> All right. I'm gonna... So basically, she says certain people and nations are considered threats to U.S. hegemony, and that so constant wars are justified to stay strong against our enemies. Um, the legal responses to this, oh, I didn't do my picture, um, is the Chinese um, Exclusion Act, Japanese internment camps, which were deemed legal by the Supreme Court, um, 
illegal immigrant reform and Immigrant Responsibility Act of 1996. All the wars on immigrants, the current wars on immigrants are part of this whole uh, white supremacist logic of that there's threats, right? And that we have to protect against these threats. Oh, none of my picture shows up. Um, this was supposed to be, uh, this is from a, a mail order bride um, site, um, talking about why they should um, get some Filipina brides. <laughs> and uh, these racialized images um, directly rose out of the US military occupation. Um, and uh, they continue to subjugate Filipino women. On top of that, in the Philippines, we have a really traditional fetal culture, and you can see that legally. There's no divorce, no abortion, um, and limited access to contraceptives. How this um, plays out for domestic workers, um, and I said between us women, is that there's um, most domestic workers end up being supervised by white women. People already talked about that it's considered women's work. Um, and so the often race and class differences are emphasized rather than struggled against by the employers. Um, so that white employers, because of race and class privileges, feel entitled to and demand often unlimited access to the labor of black and immigrant domestic workers. And there's, uh, you know, there's the physical things that we can see, like backdoor entrances, being forced to eat separately, um, and then sexual harassment especially specifically with Filipina domestic workers because of the <coughs> colonial history of Filipino women being um, forced into sexual slavery um, and then often threatened by deportation. And mom only listservs refers to, as a parent, I started getting on these listservs about, I don't know, parenting. Um, and it became, a lot of it was like the sounding board about what to do with your nannies. Um, and so here's, you know, some little tidbits pulled off of S-A-H-M means stay-at-home moms, um, and D-C means dear child. <laughs> um, anyway, um, so we could see, you know, and there's a whole, and I say mom only because they actually, I read this whole debate where, because nannies were starting, domestic workers were getting on the, um, on these, on these listservs and saying, hey, I'm available, you're looking for somebody? And they were like, no, it can only be the mothers, which... Obviously, disregarding the fact that domestic workers are mothers, oftentimes. Um, and so why it matters, I'm wrapping up. Um, it, it continues to divide women by race, um, and that oftentimes campaigns and goals are crafted, um, like in fem, you know, feminist movements that primarily benefit white women um, and disregard the experiences of women of color. Uh, in the Zoe Baird scandal, which was a she was nominated as an attorney general, and then it turned out she had an undocumented um, domestic worker working for her. Um, this was by Clinton, also way back before some of you were born. Um, and the response of a lot of feminists were that what we need is more legal nannies. It's a quote. Um, and the nanny was actually, the, the domestic worker was actually deported, um, but no one talked about that. Um, so it needs to inform our tactics and campaigns. These images and messages are powerful movers or public opinion. Oh, and there's no, anyway. An example of this is, um, <laughs> the ex I can a couple more minutes. Okay, just two minutes. I was just given two by minutes for a little um, I'm almost done. <laughs> so this was a picture, it's not up there, but it's a picture of, you know that picture of, um, it shows people running across the, like immigrants, like the warning picture of immigrants running across the street. Um, it was a picture of that and then a picture of a whole lot more. 
Um, and it was a race, this racist cartoon or something. But um, uh, there's been this attempt to feminize the immigration debate, but it kind of misses the logic of this particular logical thinking, logical, of white supremacy that in this context, women and children are the threat, right? We're reproducing more foreign invaders in, in this framework. Um, so that if we don't understand the way that race and gender plays out, that we, we, might, we might miss or misuse tactics or um, just miss what's actually happening um, out there. So this is my final one. So in the end, um, and people have talked about social, you know, reproduction and social reproduction, some of the other panelists, but what's also reproduced here is race, class, and gender hierarchy. So we have white first world children learn that their needs will be met by third world brown and black women who never can assert their own needs, right? So they spent all day um, with, uh, with um, immigrant women and demand, making demands of them. And very rarely, I mean, they don't, you know, the caregiver is not going to feel like they can uh, discipline or, you know, there's obviously limits. And if you do it too much, you get told on on a listserv. Um, um, anyway, so. Um, and childcare never becomes a public debate. And I think uh, Nefertiti, somebody mentioned, no, Grace mentioned that, that when you ask about childcare in the US, they're like, well, there is no childcare. Well, actually, there's a lot of childcare. It's just all um, in the deregulated market, right? And so that um, it fulfills the need for women who, middle class and upper class women who are going out to work, but it doesn't become an actual public. And so because of that, it never becomes a public debate. And the gender roles remain unchallenged within the heterosexual um, uh, relationships. and the state never has to provide childcare. There's no demands made on the state to provide childcare. And so current wage labor under, well, under capitalism can remain unchanged. Um, they don't, you know, we don't ha they don't have to change work rules. Everyone comes to work as if they don't have children. Um, and yeah. Oh, and, oh, and final, oh, and the final thing that I didn't have in here is that I was thinking about when we talked about the transnationalism of it is that uh, remittances, you know, continue to go and they continue to um, uphold countries like the Philippines and maintain the social structure so that people don't um, feel the need to rebel against the current world order. Thanks. Thank you, Terry. So I'm going to introduce our last speaker who will close out our panel and afterwards we'll have Q&A. Um, Linda Olikan is a founding member of Damayan. Since she migrated to the U.S. in 1994, she has worked as a domestic worker and has personally experienced the abuses, exploitation, discrimination, alienation, and helplessness until she found other workers and organizers who worked with her to build Damayan Migrant Workers Association. Linda brought her theory and practice as a student union and community organizer in the Philippines into Damayan's solid organizing, workers' rights and welfare programs, campaigns, and alliance work. Currently, she's the organization's program coordinator, direct, directly managing LUNAS Holistic Health Program. She's also Damayan's worker representative to the National Domestic Worker Alliance Coordinating Committee where Damayan is sharing its vision, knowledge, and experience in building women workers' leadership 
and the National Domestic Workers Movement. Welcome, Linda. Well, uh, I think my role is to uh, wrap up and uh, conclude the forum, and I really don't know how to do that. <laughs> the topics are so huge, right? So I'm going to try my best. And, and also I was requested to, uh, you know, discuss briefly the findings, which are actually, uh, you know, the, the heart of the forum. So uh, <clears throat> our, our research uh, focused on the migration work and living conditions of domestic of Filipino domestic workers, which actually uh, mirror the lives also of uh, other domestic workers uh, coming from uh, you know poor countries and now and they're now in the US. The, the reason that uh, we're trying really uh, hard to organize forms like this is our uh, Concern that you know there's there's a lot of uh, work along reforms and uh, advocacy in the domestic workers movement, and there is a need to really frame you know uh, the the roots and the solutions uh, for our issues because uh, the roots of the the root the 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 systems that are impacting uh, this workforce is also the same system that has caused the mass uprisings and revolts going on in, uh, you know, the, the Middle East and uh, South and Central Asia. So <clears throat> at the back of all the issues, I think, in the world today is uh, capitalism or the highest uh, stage of capitalism, which is imperialism, like what Leah has said earlier. So we want to, uh, you know, bring the focus to this system that has really uh, wrecked the lives of so many peoples in different countries and that has caused the massive migration of uh, women from poor countries to the first world. So that, that's our goal, that's our goal, right? And also to bring attention to the deeper issue uh, that's really uh, what's that? Uh, setting the stage, you know, for the oppression of workers, of domestic workers inside the home. And one of that is uh, patriarchy. Patriarchy is global, right? Uh, even in the Philippines, you know, women have suffered from that. Not only, you know, Cecil, I myself, you know, have struggled uh, against patriarchy in my own family. Yeah. And we still bring it here, right? Uh, uh, in the homes of our employers, patriarchy, patriarchy is very much alive. Coupled with, you know, racism and classism, yeah, you know, domestic workers are sadly in the intersections of all the systems. So uh, we hope that, you know, with your help, the academic and the activists, you know, uh, we will be able to really frame, you know, the discussion about, you know, these issues. Because uh, without this, uh, you know, uh, campaigns for legislations, for 
regulatory reforms, uh, they will be short-sighted. And uh, the ground is moving, right? You know, the people cannot wait anymore because of the poverty, the hardships that are really consuming the productive forces. The low-wage workers like us, uh, it's very hard to survive anymore. So, you, you know, people, you know, women and workers are really finding other means to, you know, uh, address our basic issues. And we hope that our organizing in the domestic workers' movement will be more comprehensive and be more strategic to give, you know, not only theoretical but practical leadership when real change, you know, comes uh, in our ground. That's all. Thank you very much. Okay, so like we did with the first set of speakers, we'll take um, a few questions and we'll give the speakers an opportunity to answer those first. It's hard not to notice that the pro-arguments um, almost always um, rely on sort of heteropatriarchal arguments like and, and rely on arguments about the family and the, like the, the immigrants are always good family men and they work hard and send money home and um, and, and the, the good immigrant women are the ones that care very you know for, for their families and it's always some version of that so one of one of my questions was um, basically how how could we reframe a, a pro-argument that doesn't fall onto all these other sort of rather oppressive structures. And that's my, my, my first question. My second question just fell on the floor. Okay, so my, oh, my second question is for Linda. Um, Linda, so we, you know, there's a lot of discussion, well, a lot more discussion now about the care deficit, about children in, you know, the Philippines and other parts of the world where um, the parents are, you know, have gone to um, other places to work. What about, like, I have a friend from Mexico who basically explains that the people who come back are old, broken, and sick. Um, so, there's, and I, I don't think there's a lot of work on that and discussion about that. So, I know my parents have Social Security, and they can't afford to live here. So, I assume that people have to go back um, if they can't work here. Um, so, who takes care of them? And does Demian do anything I mean, I'm, I'm just a general question, and then does Demian just do anything with that? Hi. Um, not to dichotomize, but um, one interesting thing about the problem facing domestic workers is that it sits at this nexus between two big problems in our workforce. One is the problem of generally low-wage workers and how our low-wage workforce has become much more decentralized. You can't organize workers at the Triangle Shirt Waste Factory. You, they're all in different people's... Um, you know, homes as domestic workers or working as dishwashers in restaurants and they're, they're scattered and um, the problems of decentralized low-wage um, work and how hard that is to create standards and organize. And the second is the issue of domestic work specifically and this um, pressure felt by women across races and class that domestic work is devalued um, and um, any women who choose to have children um, and are not supported by some outside source have to face the, the, the balancing of, you know, going to their job, whether that be in low-wage work or to the fanciest jobs in Wall Street and how this all comes together. 
And I was wondering how you see in terms of organizing um, where you see like the uh, strengths and weaknesses of partnering with either of these groups and, face and framing your issue as domestic workers as a broader issue of women in the American workplace and no childcare and undervaluing women, traditional women's work or the broader issue faced by immigrants and low-wage workers in this country? Okay, we'll take one more question and then we'll give the speakers an opportunity to answer. I just wanted to thank you all for sharing your stories. They were really compelling. Um, I have two questions. They're not necessarily related, but the first is on um, the nature of work happening at Damayan. And I think when there's such a big focus on changing labor laws and um, creating uh, policy changes to affect um, as many people as possible, I'm sort of wondering what happens um, in the process of fighting for women who are still involved in domestic work um, as they're strategizing around um, these policy level changes. And so I wonder if there are conversations on um, strategizing and approaching employers or placement agencies or individuals involved in placement also happening at the organization. And my second question is on uh, this conversation around gender. And um, obviously, we've been focusing a lot on women because that's the intent of this um, gathering today. But I'm wondering about men uh, in the field also and what the conversation is um, with the frame of patriarchy, in particular, like what happens to masculinity um, and ha how that's talked about within the organization. You guys asked really good questions. <laughs> Very hard ones. Uh, I mean, I think the, I'm gonna just take the first one about the reframing our discussion. Um, I mean, we struggle with that too. And I'm in the immigrant rights clinic also at the law school, so you know, a lot of how we, uh, try to defend immigrants is to keep them here and deport when they're in deportation proceedings. And a lot of that is this whole totally oppressive way. Oh, they're good and they pay their taxes and um, they're not evil. I don't, you know, like this really oppressive uh, arguments that we have to use. And um, so I don't really know that. I mean, I, I'm hoping maybe some people here might have some ideas about how do we reframe it. Cause I, but I, but one way, I mean, I did, um, we had this discussion um, with uh, actually a Dean Spades class who, uh, Dean Spades, a professor, but he founded um, the Sylvia Rivera Law Project. Um, and he talks a lot about centering it in the most marginalized people um, so that we don't lose them, right? So, I mean, I think... And here's a critique of the DREAM Act, and I, I mean, I, any relief for immigrants is great, so I, you know, but a critique of the DREAM Act is that it, it centers itself in the least marginalized, right? The students, um, the you know, as opposed to uh, what about young workers who have been working in the, in the fields all this time? I don't, you know, that came over. So if we recenter our demands in, in the most marginalized people, I think that we can that we have, then we have to reframe the, the discussion, so. I think, and then the second question that you asked was about, um, yeah, when they come home. Uh, the reason why we call our organization Migrant Workers Association is that uh, we know that, you know, undocumented women, domestic workers, at least in, in the Filipino community, want to go home. One, because uh, they have their families back home. Uh, because they're undocumented, they were not able to bring their, you know, children, 
uh, all their families are back home. Second, you know, it's, we were very strange to the nursing homes. We don't know that. We, you know, our culture is where, you know, old people, you know, die with their, you know, with their family members. So uh, that's what, you know, our old members uh, do when they have reached the age that they cannot work anymore, they're sick, whatever, you know, they go home and it's very sad. You know, some of them are able to save a little bit, but many are just broke. You know, not productive anymore without money, you know, their families, because they're the families back home depend on them. They don't have money also. That's what uh, one of our findings, that what's who benefits most from the migration of Filipino domestic workers is not their families. It is the Philippine government. You know, uh, the remittances that we send home is the lifeline of the Philippine government. You know, without our remittances, uh, it will fall apart, the government there. But going back to the women, yes, uh, it is sad. That's why we're trying to, you know, make the discussion bigger to find a more, you know, permanent strategic solution. And uh, we have not come to that, but we think that to, uh, you know, really solve the issues of migration, you know, of, you know, uh, fi of immigrant Filipino women coming here just to work, is to, you know, to stop, you know, the, what is, what the corporations are doing, you know, uh, outside of their national boundaries. And that is, you know, sucking the wealth of their, you know, client uh, nations, like what they did in the Philippines, right? You know, uh, the Philippines is very rich. If we can just be allowed to, you know, benefit from our natural resources, we will be fine. We don't have to come here. <laughs> so, you know, so does, uh, so does other countries. So uh, that's, uh, we didn't come to that point, but uh, we think that, you know, the real solution to, uh, you know, uh, forced migration, immigration problems here is for corporate America to stop what it's doing right now, you know, stop ruining the countries of, the economies of poor countries so that, you know, uh, surplus labor from other countries will not have to come here so that families won't, won't have to be separated and so that, you know, uh, migrant women will not suffer like this. Uh, about the other question, uh, what was that? The, 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 the role of men in the organization and how they react to discussions on patriarchy? Damayan is about 95% women. We have uh, male members, and one of them, I think, is here. <laughs> Beaver. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, some, you know, uh, great men <laughs> are also doing domestic work to support their families. But uh, the phenomenon of uh, domestic work in the era of uh, imperialism, it's all about women, you know, taking on the challenge of uh, going abroad and supporting their families. And uh, we can look at, you know, uh, we should try to look at the, what's happening, you know, to, to the countries of origin. Why is that? The push. And second, uh, the pull. Uh, 
because what the jobs that are available in the receiving countries are mostly domestic work, service work, which are, you know, uh, what's that, uh, particularly fit for women. Uh, that's the culture right now. So that, you know, uh, more women are migrating. So how do we address the issues of men, um, their masculinity? Is that a question? Uh, well, I think, yeah, I think sometimes those are is real issues, but uh, patriarchy is more dom is more dominant, I think. You know, uh, in, in our organization, we have to call the attention of some of our members who are, who have that, you know, who have those values. They may be doing domestic work, but sometimes they demonstrate, you know, uh, you know, their entitlements, uh, biases against uh, their uh, wives, partners. So, yeah. But uh, we also have this uh, view that men and women, you know, they're both exploited in the same, in the same system. We do not, you know, uh, exclude men in this struggle because uh, domestic workers' issues are very much economic uh, issues. So, you know, uh, to us to win the battle against, you know, this, uh, uh, against economic oppression, we need the men, you know, the workers, the men, the working men, you know, beside the working women, right? So I don't know if I answered your question, sorry. <laughs> One of your questions was about kind of working, I think, from what I understand, working with uh, white women employers or just middle class, um, upper class women that are also struggling to balance work and family um, and trying to pull those together working with domestic workers. Is, was that your question? Right, right, right. Okay, uh, I think um, uh, Linda has... Yeah, you're correct. Uh, I think, yeah, we can work with uh, middle-class employers because some of our employers are really, you know, uh, corporate uh, employers. They're really rich. Uh, you know, the employer who fired me was, you know, a department manager at Goldman and Sachs. So uh, it's, I think, uh, yeah, it's very hard to work with them. But uh, right now, uh, Jay Fritz, <laughs> Jay, Jay Fritz is organizing... Uh, Employers, employers, Jay Fritz, uh, Jews for Economic, Jews for Racial and Economic uh, justice. justice. So they're organizing a national uh, employers organization called Hand in Hand. They're working with the National Domestic Workers Alliance. Uh, you know, they're also promoting, you know, uh, decent uh, standards and respect in the homes uh, for domestic workers. Okay, so that, so more hands are going up. We're we're about ten minutes over time. So um, I just want to um, ask if if I can take the, the two who raised their hands earlier, and maybe in a, the networking time that will happen after this, um, we want to ask people to stay. We have a little bit of time in the room um, to continue eating, and um, please direct your questions to the panelists afterwards. But I just want to take these last two questions, um, and um, please keep them brief if you can. My question is like, we know that every individual here regarding of race, gender, class, and we, we talk about immigration, right? <clears throat> so documented or undocumented, 
domestic worker, when we apply the job, like one also asked, is regarding the women or the men, and I'm one of the victims. When you apply the job, you ask, you've been asked like, oh, you're going to do 8 to 8, 8 to 10. You didn't say no to get the job, right? So my point of view here is, how can we correct this thing? That if the New York law has an 8-hour law or 40 hours work, but because we need a job, we just say yes to get the job. So my point here is, we need a course of action and I think the one major factor here is we have census of 12 to 15 million illegal immigrants. And I started us there, and we sponsored by immigration lawyer, which I'm still waiting for my priority date, and it's eight months. But I cannot move on. I, I, I spoke to Leah with my case, and I, I joined one training to have a better life, but I can move on because I cannot get my license because of this thing regarding the immigration problem. Though, though we have any course of action or we have any updates, because I think it's, it's going around like the SB 1070, the, the Texas law, um, we, we, we have to correct this, that in this case, I think if the immigration will implement the guest work program, and this will be correct, this thing will not happen because every employer will be aware that before you hire a person, regardless of gender class, he knows what is going on. So do we have an update with this regarding with the labor law or the immigration problem that we're encountering now? So I think that's a question I can ask. I think one of the things that, one of the demands that we should all go out there and demand that corporations pay union wages in all these countries that they move to, I think that would help solve some of the issues in terms of migration. But um, I was glad Linda mentioned capitalism and, you know, because women are the hardest hit and particularly those that are most marginalized, you know, due to race and sex and sexuality. Um, I want to just, you know, I think one of the problems that, you know, has always been an issue, even in the feminist movement, is dealing with race and sexuality, those issues. And even in the left, as a feminist going into the left, you have to deal with the left that can be very sexist. So I don't think we can deny that, but I think it's important to really recognize the problem as capitalism, as the thing that oppresses women and oppresses everybody. And um, we have to struggle against that. So I was glad that uh, Linda mentioned that. And the other thing, too, is that child care was an issue. Um, during World War II, all women that worked in the factories had, you know, had child care. And they also went home with a hot meal for their kids. And in the early feminist movement, child care was an issue. And it's been, there was that fight with the, um, like now types, that would be single issue. But grassroots feminists always raise child care, especially around reproductive rights. And um, it's still an issue in terms of that. Okay, thank you. I'll give the, we'll give the um, speakers a chance to respond. And again, I'm sorry that we have to cut the discussion because uh, we are over time now. Um, but I mean, just quickly, I mean, the immigration, you know, when we talked about 
immigration being a real, the current climate being a real war against, um, that's being waged. Uh, every day when I read Im immigration laws, you know, they're really bad, obviously. I mean, they're really, yeah. Uh, and, 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 and what I, it's, you know, it's interesting when you, this, you may see this as hyperbole, but I don't think it is. Um, but the Nazi state was created legally by the Germans. Um, it was, it, they were legal, they, it was all legal, legal, and I mean that, right? They passed laws, things happen, and, and, uh, and second, you know, and, and the Holocaust happened, so that, you, a lot of what immigration law is right now, I believe, is part, is that move towards that. It's a very, you know, the the raids in people's homes, the the buses, the trains. The you can't, you almost can't move anywhere in this country um, without coming into contact with border patrol. And you don't have to be very close to the border. You can be hundreds of miles from the border at this point. Um, so it, it's not getting better, clearly, um, and. I, you know, I don't know. I mean, I think that if we understand that that's what's what's happening, at least we understand what's happening, um, and then we can define it um, and talk about it. But yeah, yeah. I, I think the current uh, <clears throat> the current climate now is uh, obviously anti-immigrant, right? So uh, even Obama, I think, cannot do anything. He's trying to be, you know, centrist, but the right is getting stronger. And with the crisis, yeah, you know, they're done, you know, attacking the immigrants. Now they're attacking the public sector workers. You know, they, they will not give that to the undocumented population because that's a control. It's a means of control to, you know, uh, for the foreign labor, you know. They, they want to control foreign labor. They want to keep them undocumented so that, you know, they, they can keep, you know, depressing our wages. So that's my view, uh, you know. So let's not hope for that. I'm sorry. Uh, we should just be, you know, more creative uh, in our grassroots organizations so that we can help ourselves. Because, uh, you know, even though we're, some of us are undocumented, if we have really a strong grassroots organization, we can have, you know, uh, we will be able to uh, help each other do what needs to be done, right? You know, under Obama, I think deportations have more than tripled. Um, border patrol, the money going to border control has more than, you know, tripled. The detention centers, new detention centers are being built. So. Uh, it's actually not even center. It's really he he's pretty to the right um, as far as immigration goes, um, and so at least in the actual lives of immigrants, right? Um, it's definitely uh, it's the new administration has not been any better. But um, and and I agree. I mean, I think I agree with what you'd said over there about you know obviously it, it all boils down to capitalism and the and what uh, Linda is alluding to too that. This is, we're in a, you know, capitalism is in a real crisis moment. Um, and so in order to kind of keep things like semi, you know, for the privileged first world classes, um, we need a cheap surplus labor. Um, so immigrants provide that, uh, especially if you're undocumented and uh, 
easily exploited. Okay, um, so we'll now close our discussion. Um, and I, I want to do something really quick, which I, I think I should have done in the, in the beginning, but um, the, the women who are really in the center of we've, everything we've been discussing tonight um, are domestic workers uh, and the members of Damayan. So I just want to ask Damayan members in the audience to stand up just to be recognized. Um, and they're a little shy to stand up, but please stand up, Damayan. Stand up, members. And there's um, a couple in the back as well. You want to put your hand up? At the Cecil, hand. <laughs> okay. Um, these are the women who really run Damayan. Thank you. <laughs> these are the women who really run Damayan. They lead Damayan. Um, and they're also in the leadership of this national movement that we've been talking about. Uh, so I wanted to take a moment to recognize them.